Today, I'm joined by one of the biggest name in UK estate agency, a gentleman called Ian Preston, who has a large estate agency operation in North Yorkshire, member of the Property Academy and very well thought of in the industry. Thank you for joining me today, Ian. Great to be here. Um, Ian, I'd like to talk about your journey as an estate agent, um, why you became an estate agent uh, and, the, and the trials and the tribulations of your story up until this very day, so people watching can learn from you. Is that okay? Absolutely fine, yeah. Good stuff. It. So, whereabouts were you born? I was born, um, I was actually born in Worcestershire, so I was born in Bromsgrove, um, and then six months later my parents moved up to the northeast, and so I've grown up in Newcastle until I was maybe 20, 22. So where's the accent gone then? Uh, so I sort of never developed it really. I, um, uh, my parents don't have a Geordie accent, and we moved to the west end of Newcastle. Parents split up at quite an early age, um, and so we didn't live in necessarily the best part of town. Um, but. I was lucky enough that I got a scholarship to go to a private school and they sort of beat it out of you. So there's literally no trace of Geordie uh, left at the end of Did the you have a little bit when you were? Yeah, I guess so. Because I, I know you, if you were living with your mum, then you weren't getting it at home then, were you? Yeah, so I lived at home with mum and two brothers. Um, and yeah, none of us really picked up the accent. Uh, my younger brother Duncan probably picked it up the most, but yeah, none of us sound like Geordie. So basically I spent the first 20, 24 years of my life explaining that I was actually from Newcastle. So if I parachuted you in to, uh, on a Saturday night um, outside Newcastle Central Station with a couple of pints of Stella, would that, would that accent, a little bit of that accent come back literally, or was it? Literally nothing, there's, there's nothing there. It's not like a repressed, you know, Geordie accent or anything like that. I love Newcastle, I love, I was so happy there. It's a fan city. Um, I'm a passionate follower of the football club, so yeah, you know, good times. When you were growing up, did you, what did you want to be? I mean, obviously you've got this scholarship to this very nice school. Yeah. Um, you obviously got there on merit. Yeah. Uh, were you academic? Yeah, I was reasonably academic. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I never really applied a work ethic um, as a young man. Did it just uh, naturally come? Uh, I mean, I guess so. There were lots of kids around me who worked harder and I thought I could get by on my wits alone, basically. And um, that culminated in the fact I wanted to join the RAF. Um, so I wanted to be a fighter pilot. That was my dream. Okay. Uh, my grandfather was a fighter pilot in the RAF. So my mum had grown up living around the world um, and that's the life which I wanted. And I went to Cranwell for selection and they gave me a thing called a flying scholarship. That's uh, literally just up the road. Oh, yeah, well, there you go. So, so my dad's grandma gave me a flying scholarship, which is at Teesside Airport, and I went and I learned how to fly light aircraft, uh, which culminated on, the, on my 17th birthday, going solo for the first time. But the problem was is that all my uh, classmates had gone solo the night before, so we'd all gone to the pub, um, uh, and it was a traditional to drink a yard of ale when you'd first flown solo. So I'd partaken of this despite having not gone solo, at which point I was incredibly hungover as a 17-year-old about to fly this plane for the first time on my own. And as I, as I did my touch and go, so it's where you take off, you go do a loop, you land, take off, do a loop, land. Uh, the instructor said to me, listen, you're obviously not on your game today, but just bring the plane back in one piece. So off you go. Um, <laughs> and, um, so he sent the 17 year old sticky of booze off and he said, don't do any of the checks. Don't follow the checklist. Just don't do any checks. Just, just put the power on and off you go. So he, I put the power on, started. And as I was climbing, I just felt this. Doof, 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 and I could see the 
the propeller stopping as I was taking off at Teesside Airport. I was like, oh my God, what's going on? And I, to, I scanned around the cockpit, desperately tried to find what was wrong. And I hit the fuel pump button, which I hadn't put on because he said, don't do the checks. And I'd taken him completely, literally done nothing, which you'd normally do when you take I off. I thought it was a bird strike. <laughs> no. So I managed to take off and land this plane. So anyway, so I really enjoyed flying. Um, I had the opportunity to do aerobatics. I had the opportunity to fly a jet, um, do all of those bits. And then I went down for university selection. Um, and they told me I was short-sighted. And that was it, done. So I ended up um, then doing my A-levels with the knowledge then that I wouldn't be going into the RAF. And I didn't quite get the grades I needed. I needed three Bs, I got ABC, and I was due to go to Edinburgh. And instead I went to Leeds. I hadn't sorted out any accommodation in Leeds. So I ended up- What did you go and read? Uh, economics. Uh, I didn't read it, just to be crystal clear, because I arrived there and I just, uh, ended up in this house share because I didn't have any halls or anything sorted in Hyde Park in Leeds and um, I just partied for a year just completely went off the rails um, and I sort of woke up six months later having not attended any lectures uh, attempted to do my exams at the end of first year failed all of them except politics which wasn't what I was reading and then I got a, job, a summer job in the state agents. Do you think you were you know a lad from a, 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 the lower end of the town because yeah. of your family situation. You were you went through the the gilded path of of a private school with a scholarship. You were golden balls because you were RAF. Yeah. Do you think all of a sudden it kind of hit the the plan that you had? Is that was the parting? To totally. Like so. So I'd been able to get by with minimal effort throughout my entire life with people telling me that I was going to go places, you know, and all of a sudden I just had nothing to aim for. I had no focus and I couldn't get by just on wits. And as I say, I ended up getting a summer job at Keith Pattinson's estate agents up in the Northeast. Just to pay for the bill. Just, just, yeah, just, well, it was just to try and get myself to a point where I could then pay off the debt that I then had to, to go and do my second year. But then it became evident I couldn't do my second year. I'd have to reset the first year. And I decided what I'd try and do is earn some money pay off my debts and then start again and maybe go back to university. How did it make you feel that Golden Balls was all of a sudden slightly tarnished? Oh, I mean, devastated. It was, a, it was a massive wake up call. And the thing which I learned in the state agency, because I started literally at the bottom with everyone else on, you know, minimum wage. I can't remember what my salary was, about £7,500 a year in 1999. Um, I just, yeah, I didn't have any money. All of my mates were off, you know, at Oxford, Cambridge, um, you know, merchant bankers and then I was back working in the state agents in Newcastle. It was it was a very chastening experience, but it taught me the value of hard work and you know to talk about core values. One of them, one of my core values is energy and it's because you have to work hard. Like literally nothing comes without hard work. I'm a passionate believer in that. What was it like being an estate agent back in the late nineties? I mean the housing market was just about to take off or was yeah. beginning to did you enjoy it? I loved it, yeah. I was really good at it. You know, I, was, I enjoyed talking to people. I enjoyed uh, meeting people. Um, I loved the fact that what you got back was what you put in. Um, yeah, it was great. I had a fantastic time. I didn't have a driving license at that point, so I went around on a moped. Um, I once drove my moped up a wall and crashed it. I skidded it off on a roundabout one time. So, you know, I had a great time. It wasn't too long before you went and joined the corporate SWEs. That's right, yeah. So I realised, I mean, again, Major Director Keith Pattinson's, um, but that the it was kind of sink or swim. That was just the way it was. You went in and you did okay, 
um, and you might get on, but I, I wanted something a bit more structured. I wanted um, to kind of build my career and Countrywide at that time uh, were the best. They were the best. They were the best. And, and everyone was afraid of them, weren't they? Absolutely. Can you remember? Yeah, totally. It was When you were up against a Countrywide agent, whoa. Absolutely right. There were 2% fees, um, absolutely spot on the best. Look, Best Reefs Northeast was run by a guy called Mark Christopher, who works with me now. Um, and so Mark and I work together and he runs our associate programme. But he was the managing director and I was a 20-year-old estate agent in May 2000. And um, yeah, and I just went there and I thought, I, I was really cocky still, and I thought I knew everything. And I went in with like nine months experience or 12 months experience. I just Obviously realized- you can run the show at nine Yeah, months. yeah, exactly, yeah. And I just realized I knew nothing and I had to learn everything again. Have you seen young lads come into your organization thinking they know everything. Totally. I mean, so chatting to a couple of the guys uh, last week, I think your attitude once you get to your, certainly from my perspective, once I got into my 40s, is I'm much less sure of myself now than I was when I was in my 20s. Yeah, I'm much more confident. I'm much happier to say I don't know. I'm much happier to say I don't understand <laughs> when, you know, someone uses a phrase that I don't know. Whereas I think in my 20s, because I sort of felt, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's a different time of life. You know, it's got great qualities, but, um, but yeah, it's definitely different. Yes, it's the difference between confidence and cockiness. Isn't totally, it? yeah. Totally. So you went through the ranks of NEG, valuing. Yeah. Can you remember your first valuation? I'm not sure I can. I was in, certainly in Wickham. Um, so that's the posh part, isn't it, on the South Bank? That's right. So it's the southwest of Newcastle. Yes. Um, so it's just kind of next to Gateshead. So it's on yes. the south side of the river, so it's a bit weird. Um, but yeah, it was a nice enough area. Um, my branch manager went off on maternity leave, so I was like an office cover manager um, and did the valuations for nine months. And was at that time, did the office manager was the valuer, were they? That's right, yeah. So it was a, it was a, it was a two neck branch, so two negotiators, and a branch manager valuer plus a branch admin. And then after that, you went back to city centre yep. as valuer. That's right. So my boss returned, and given that I'd been running the show for sort of nine months, it felt that it was right for me to move on. So I went to be a valuer in Newcastle city centre, um, and that was a huge office at the time. I mean, to put it in context, we were putting on 60, 70 listings a month. I mean, it was like volumes now, which you know very few people would do. And you know, I was seeing 20 plus valuations a week. It was busy. So basically, in a, you know, you were basically five a day, just in and out. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Sometimes six or seven a day. It was mental. Yeah, I, I, I was um, manager of the Halifax in Nottingham City Centre back in that sort of yeah. time, early two thousands. Yeah. yeah, it was um, interesting times. Not nothing like they are now. Nothing like it. No, I mean the level of precision that we would expect people to do valuations with now in terms of preparation, follow up. You know, it was just literally pick, pick your neck. You know, totally. Okay, just just pick it up and you go. Give it the spiel and then sign it up and because you'd never follow it up. I mean, it was, you know, when I think about the standards we operated to, I mean, the conversion was great. You know, we convert well over 50% at 2% fees. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty um, fly by night. You enjoying the time there? Yeah, I loved it. So loved you it. were in your early 20s. You must yeah. have been earning quite well with that. Yeah, it was, it was all right. But, I, but suddenly I was a dad at 21. I just bought my first flat. And actually my son, who's now 21, has now moved into that flat that he had his first birthday party in. Wow. So, he's, so he came down to work for me for the last three years, actually, um, after he finished his A-levels, and he came into the family business, and he's now relocated back up to Newcastle, where he's from. And so he's now living in that same flat. Good stuff. Um, you really only spent six months, though, in Newcastle That's before right. you went to sunny Durham. That's right. So Beautiful uh, city, by the way. Wonderful city. Oh. Um, so my dad's from uh, Durham, so I used to go visit there maybe once every month or six weeks uh, to go and visit him. Uh, so I know Durham pretty well, and um, I was just desperate for a branch manager's job. I got a taste of 
running teams, supporting people, mentoring. Um, I guess, what was I then? Maybe like 22, 23, um, which is a lot younger than a lot of managers yeah. would be these days, but it's my first full branch manager's job. Um, and yeah. Did they train you well to prepare brilliantly, you? Brilliantly, yeah. There was a, uh, so Mark Christopher did a huge amount with me. I had a, an area manager called Steve Henning. Uh, and then they also got like the countrywide divisional trainer to come and spend some one-on-one -on -one mentoring time. Uh, I went through the management development program with Mark, which was a sort of multi-module program. Um, and to be honest with you, in, a, in uh, Preston Baker, I've replicated those programs for management development. So yeah, it's really important. But you're only there nine months, and then you went back to city centre. That's right. Newcastle. You don't hang about here, mate. No, you? no, you did. And so this is classic journeyman estate agent. <laughs> the one, the, the one mitigation is, I would say, it was all with the same company. Yes, I'll give you that. And so you know, I actually only ever worked for two companies. And with Countrywide, I started there when I was whatever it was. If it was May two thousand, so I would have been nineteen. And then I left there to go and sort of start my own business. Um, and actually, loyalty is really important. You know, again, without blowing my trumpet, I did well. Um, Durham was the worst performing office in the Northeast. And so we took that on. It was losing money. We got it to a point where it was making money. And then the opportunity came up to run Newcastle City Centre, which was the flagship branch. And that was the that was the big opportunity. But again, you weren't there that long at all. Because the Bradford and Bingley acquisition happened. So Countrywide acquired Bradford and Bingley and they doubled the size of the um, Best Leaves Northeast as it was then. And effectively what they did is they combined the three worst um, Best Reeves offices, which was York, Aikham and Pocklington, with the three worst Bradford and Bingley offices, which was Harrogate, Ripon and Knaresborough. And they formed an area and then they advertised for an area manager, at which point I was 24 years old and I thought, I can do this. I, I can do this. So, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, that area was... That was really young. For really, yeah, super young. I was the youngest area manager in Countrywide at that point. Um, and... It, those combined offices, those six offices, were losing over £600,000 a year. So it was like, it was just a, a, a sort of money pit. Um, and we would try to then merge two cultures together. So this Bradford and Bingley culture and this countrywide culture, and then just put those two things together and that was the job. How did that work? Um, do you mean how did the cultural change work? Mm. Um, uh, with great difficulty. And what I learned is that I didn't really have a management team who shared the same values that I did. Um, so I had to go directly to the, the induction training of the new recruits and spend lots of time with that layer underneath them, if that makes sense, to directly infuse those skills whilst I then gradually created, um, you know, younger, hungrier individuals who could then come up and take those management jobs. And that, so, so effectively it was about cutting out the BM, going straight, straight to the negotiator staff, developing those guys directly and then replacing. That's quite insightful if you don't mind me saying. Because normally you just shout at the branch managers and... Yeah, I mean, in, in the traditional branch structure, the branch manager is the thing which makes that business work or not work. That's it. If you've got a great branch manager, they'll hire great people, they'll have great standards personally. Those standards will be infused to the people they work for and the business will thrive. And if you don't, then you Because don't. most area managers would just say, right, let's clear all the branch managers out. Yeah. But then I'm assuming if you don't, it's really hard to um, bring people in if they haven't got your values. So you thought, actually, I'll play the long game. Totally. Yeah. Again, that's quite smart for a 24-year-old. I mean, I had great mentors, I had great leaders around me, uh, and I'm sure that, you know, lots of the thoughts and ideas, you know, we, we, we magpie from other people. Where did this come from? Did this come from your mum, your dad, your grandparents? This, this, this foresight? I mean, obviously, so who gave you the hard work ethic? 
I say the hard work ethic was learned from failure. Like, like fundamentally, I mean, my mum works incredibly hard. So my mum, uh, having been a single parent, bringing up three boys on her own. Um, so my mum and dad split up when I was three. She then put herself through university. She then did a doctorate. So she became Dr. Uh, Preston. She then uh, did a PGCE, uh, you know, became a teacher, became head of department, ended up running a center called the Science Learning Center. She's an incredibly smart woman. Um, I mean, only yesterday, she came uh, third uh, in the national triathlon championships. Uh, she's second in Europe. She came ninth in the world championships. She's just, you know, she's relentless, absolutely relentless. Was she like that before uh, your dad and her split up? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they got married incredibly young. They met incredibly young, like, you know, 19, 20, and just, you know, you put three kids into the mix. My dad um, went yeah. to work abroad. And yeah, what so, did you learn from your dad? Oh, my dad is an incredibly hard worker. He's a super smart guy. And actually, my dad ended up working for the business, doing an analytics and data analysis. So he actually, his background is loss adjusting, risk management. Um, he worked for big construction companies. And so he actually came into our estate agency to do some consulting to help us develop systems. So in about 2010, something like that. So, so yeah. This playing the long game, that, is that learnt? Because that's quite a big skill that not many people have playing the long game. And I know we're going to come on and talk about the way you've taken the business later in this chat. Sure. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't think of it in those terms, if that makes sense, in terms of playing the long game. I mean, all, all I've ever tried to do is maximise the opportunity which we've got, you know, to build great businesses. To For help what reason? Build... Just fast cars, fast holidays? No, that... no I'm, not a, I'm not a materialistic person, particularly. Um, uh, I mean, I've had to become more materialistic the more kids I've had, uh, but but like fundamentally, I'm not. How many kids have you got? I've got six. Wow. Yeah, so I've got six kids. But apart from providing for your family and having a nice house, it's not all about the money. It's not about money. It never has been. What is it about then? It's it's about doing great work. It's about being surrounded by great people. You know, building things together. You know, that's that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. So I I I, I need interesting challenges. I need interesting problems uh, to solve, and that is that's what, what gets me going. But what do you do when you've solved it? Do you go looking for another problem? Totally, yeah, literally. So the moment I get to the top of a mountain, sometimes literally. So I I went through a period where I was into alpinism. So what the hell's that? Uh, so climbing alpine mountains, oh, like right. ice climbing, uh, mixed Scottish climbing, uh, which culminated in me climbing the Matterhorn. And literally the moment I got there with my Preston Baker uh, sign up to the top of the Matterhorn, it's like, what's next? And even, to be honest, even five steps before you reach the top, you're starting to think about what's next. So it's the thread of the chase? Totally, yeah. Yeah, the achievement is nothing. I mean, in the nicest possible sense, you know, our achievements are baubles, which we hang around ourselves. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to, you know, receive lots of awards and accolades, but it's about the problems. It's the solving of the problems, which is the bit I find interesting. And where does that come from in your family? I don't know. I don't, my dad is definitely a problem solver, um, but I don't know, it's just, that's just how my, how, you know, how my brain works, really. You then set up a franchise within the Bearstones Network. That's right. Why was that? So the time was uh, 2008. Well, hey! <laughs> um, what year? Hold on. Uh, so, so that was 2008. So, so summer the 2008. poo was just about to hit the fan. It was hitting. So basically, I was getting married 
in uh, August 2008. What's the name of your wife? Uh, Claire. Okay. Um, and so Claire and I were getting married. We were expecting our first baby in How there. did you meet Claire? Uh, at work. She was a mortgage advisor. Fantastic. Yes, classic. Yep. Yep. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Same here. Yeah. Is that right? Mortgage yeah. advisor. No, oh, no. Right. <laughs> better work. She was right. okay. a secretary. You know the old days yeah. when people used to type your brochures and not the values. That's so so yeah so, so claire and i met at work uh we were expecting our first baby so we got engaged she got pregnant we we're expecting our first baby and uh maya was born in november 2008 so i went on holiday um for my honeymoon i came back and then mark uh christopher my md called me to a meeting with his pa and said ian um you know, you submitted a plan before you went on holiday for the restructuring of the branches. Because, I mean, you know, you'll know what it was like summer 2008. It was like the lights have been turned off, volumes were down 80%. Anyone who's working this market today thinking it's tough, it's not even, it's not comparable. It really was like, we're going to do a separate video later on yeah. that, but yeah. it was a completely... It's just totally different. Um, and so 80% reduction in volume, um, we had to restructure. So I've made a proposition to shut our Acom office, our Pocklington office, um, Shipley, so by, the, by which point I'd taken on the West Yorkshire region as well through various restructures. And um, they said, and we're going to shut York. And I was like, Mark, like, I totally support the plan, but York's a mistake. And he was like, well, I understand what you're saying, but this is the decision that's been made. And I was like, I've just restructured the York office. I know we've moved from the expensive premises to cheaper premises. We've moved in with countrywide residential lettings as they were at the time. Um, we can make this work. I really believe that. And I said, I'd like to take it away if that's okay and just reconsider York. They went away, they reconsidered, and they said, no, we definitely want to close York. And I said, well, I feel strongly enough about this that I would like to resign and I'd like to take it on as an independent franchise. Because they did have a um, franchise network at the time. They did, that's right. Uh, probably just sub 100 offices is where oh. they were. And um, I said, basically, I'll stay and do my area manager's job if you keep York open, but I'll leave and set it up as a franchise if you're going to close it. That's it. And so uh, James uh, Baker is my cousin, um, and he was running my Bradford office at that point. Um, and Bradford was going to be closed, so James was going to be uh, redundant. I just decided to leave, and they agreed to let us have it as a franchise. Can you remember the first day? Definitely, yeah. I can remember it much more clearly than my first valuation. Um, yeah, I mean, the first day, the, the build-up to it, we had effectively one month to try and get everything ready. And so we'd acquired a unit, we'd opened it. James and I did all of the work ourselves. So I've still got a scar there, which is from where I planed uh, my hand whilst trying to plane a door. Um, Couldn't you stay in the old premises? No, no. So it's part of Countrywide Residential Lettings. They wanted us out in the nicest possible sense. So, um, so yeah, so we had to find new premises, which we found on Warmgate. And yeah, we just did everything ourselves. It was fantastic. Like we cannibalized loads of old window displays from offices which had been shut down in the Countrywide Group. It was just, yeah, it was just awesome. It was really good. And I took two people with me. So I took a lady called Rebecca and I took SJ, um, who I know has uh, done your yeah. show before. Did you have a little bit of money behind you at that nope, time? Not really. Like I borrowed 20, 30 grand. Uh, James borrowed 20, 30 grand. So we basically had probably about 40K of capital that we borrowed and that was it. And um, what did your wife say when you said, I'm handing in my notice? She my own manager's job. Yeah, back to back me hundred percent. She said, "Do you believe it's the right thing to do?" I said, "Yes, I do." I said, "I can't promise. Like it could all go horribly wrong." How long have you been married by this time? Uh, we've been married two months, maybe one month. Two months. And she was about to have a baby. So she. So so we opened in October. 
Maya was born in November. 12 months time, we had twins. So we had three kids within the first year of opening the business, which was quite exciting. Do you think about me? Do nope. <laughs> well, my values stole pace, just as... <laughs> but you didn't stop with one office with the franchise. You went and opened up some other branches. That's did right. You, whereabouts did you open those? So um, as part of the deal when we'd exited, we'd also secured the rights for Selby, as we felt that that would be the next office to right. open. So we opened an office in Selby one year later. Um, after that, we then there was a, a franchisee who was struggling over in Leeds, and he had two offices, one in Headingley, one in Oakwood, so North Leeds. And so we bought those offices in 2010. So we ended up with four offices. Did you enjoy going back to the coalface of the state issues? Yeah, I loved it. Loved it. Uh, James did most of the listing. I maybe listed one to two days a week. Um, I ran the operation, did the business side of things. And then we had Sarah Jane and Rebecca who were our negotiator. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a, an all-star team. SJ was fantastic, really well thought of. Rebecca was brilliant. She was one of my branch managers. And then just gradually we added, the t added to the team. And because... I'd had quite a lot of connections with people who'd worked for me previously, and we'd been very big on uh, development. As we added to the team, we were basically able to cherry pick really, really high quality members of staff. So we were able to go because they emotionally bought into you. You didn't have to go hunting for the totally. next job in value. Where you... That's it. Then in 2011, um, or just a bit, bit before, there's the we've decided to sell all their franchises. That's right. And as is often the case with corporate estate agent, they get the communication just spot on. So really, so so we got so we were told that there was a call that we needed to attend. So we jumped on this call, and you dialed in and you listened to a recorded message. <laughs> so having invested three years, you know everything I had, um, built these brands, and you know we take it as a franchise initially because we wanted some synergy between the stock that we taken from Renton's Countrywide to put that into Bear Street's Countrywide. So we'd invested in the brand value. And then, yeah, that was it. It was just like, it's done. And we're now Hunters. But hold on a second. Hunters come from York, so they've already got Hunters branches. Yeah, literally, they had one just down the road from us. So we had Hunters York and Hunters York now. And we had uh, Selby. They had a franchisee already in Selby. And they'd sold the master franchise for Leeds, which is where we were. And in addition to that, we'd already purchased additional franchise rights from Bears at that point, the areas that we hadn't yet opened. Were they proposing initially for you to stay as Hunters? So it was clear that that wasn't... So what they wanted us to... Um, to do something in Leeds with them, yeah, and see whether or not we could do a deal with the master franchisee in Leeds. Um, but in York and Selby, it was a non-starter. So the option... Yeah, because York is the mothership for hunters. Absolutely right. And so the options on the table were, we can effectively sell you on again to maybe someone like Intercounty or so effectively in the LSL stable, so we could effectively sell these franchise groups on, or alternatively, you can do a deal to buy, buy yourselves out of this. Um, and initially, obviously, I was very angry and upset that through no choice of our own, we now had to suddenly find money to buy ourselves out of a contract that had effectively been sold on, assigned. Um, but once we'd sort of got our heads together, thought it through, we thought, okay, this is an opportunity. How long did it, did it take for the anger to dissipate and you see that as an opportunity? Um, so my, my, my grandfather on my father's side, Grandad Jack, always said whenever you've got a big problem you sleep on it and you sleep on it again and um you know so two days and you actually thought hold on a second because if you think about it with the franchise you can have to give 10 or what percentage yeah. away 
Yeah, oh, so, so we were their top performing franchise in the UK. I mean, we were, so they would send people to us to sort of, you know, sell the dream. Um, and so we were paying probably £80,000 a year in franchise fees. So, you know, it was not an insignificant sum of money. And I know there's a lot of franchisees out there that, that have got, you know, six-figure branches that are writing checks for 12 grand a month. Yeah. So actually, what did it cost you to buy out? So it was, you know, sort of 40, 50K. That's not sort of, bad, mate. Well, I think looking back, it was a sniff in the ocean. But at the time, it seemed huge. Because not only that, we had to set up the brand. You know, we had to do everything. Okay, and the, well, just put a new one. <laughs> just go to the printers, print a new thing off. And I know it's not as good, easy as that. But yeah. but yeah, that's what we did. And so we decided that we, but of course, we sort of lost all that brand equity, which we'd invested in. Yes. And we had to then create this new brand from scratch. But of course, you know, the story has, a, has got a happy ending. Did, um, did changing the brand affect your business in the short term? I mean, to a certain extent, yes, and a certain extent, no. I mean, it, it did in the sense that Bear Sleeves had been in York actually since the 90s. And so there were people who had no idea who Bristol Bake was. And probably for two or three years afterwards, we'd be going out on valuations and say, oh, I'd never heard of you before. Yes, but at least you've been called out. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. What do you think you could have done differently to help, you know, someone changing from one name to another? Just advice. Um, I mean, your database is your biggest asset. So just because your brand's changed, your database is still exactly the same value. So how you organise your database is the number one thing that both then and now is the secret to your success. It's about your data and of course then you've got to do something with it you know? so so then it's about marketing and prospecting so you know two things which have followed me all the way through my career have been prospecting and how you organize your data fascinating fascinating insight and i just wish more people would take that on mm. um so you've grown preston baker so how many offices is it now so now we've you can got, go now 12 years we have so we expanded to eight and now we've contracted so actually, we've moved to an associate model. Well, we're going to come on to that in a yeah, second, sure. but, you know, and I know, you know, my thoughts on awards and things like that. Yeah. And they're very important to have. <laughs> you should be very proud of it. It's, it's the way you talk about them. But you've, uh, you've been overall winner of the, in the Best Estate Agency Guide in 2017 is the best branch. Yeah. So well done on that one. Um, best Training and Development Northern Agency. Yeah. Silver in 2015. Winner of um, Best Northern Agency in 14. Winner of Best Small Agency in 13. I think I visited you in 17 or 18 yeah. and was really impressed. You've got, as I said, Sarah Jane working for you, SJ, um, who is, if you don't mind me saying, one of the best lettings managers. I know she's not lettings managers yeah. now, but in terms of totally. ops. Yeah, absolutely awesome. Yeah, yeah very, very, yeah. very Takes good. a lot to impress me. Yeah. And that, that yeah, very good. Um, but we're not here to blow smoke up your backside. No. What made you sell your lettings ball? Such a great question. So when did you sell it? So we sold it summer last year, so summer 22. So you were rocking and rolling. Yep. You were a big regional player. Yep. You know, you could have, you held your head up high in the, you know, in terms of north of England sure. estate agents. Yep. You were up there, weren't you? Yep. You know, accolades coming out of your ears in your early 40s. Was James still in the business? Yeah, James is still in the business. Okay. What all of a sudden made you go, let's sell this 600, you know, this is Yorkshire so that, and they're decent fees as well. Sure, yeah. we're, de we're not dealing with, with Bolton or Wigan, nothing wrong with those two towns, but the rents are low. You're dealing with nice areas with nice yeah, yeah, rents yeah. 
surely it was foolish, foolhardy, to sell a, a 600 unit lettings board, which is going to be bringing you in decent money each month. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, you'd have sold it and got a, but again, that's a lump. Why did you sell your lettings board when you didn't need to? So as we go forward, one of the key things is about profitability. And my view of lettings is whilst it generates fantastic revenue, we never got it to a position in terms of the scale to make it hugely profitable as we go forward. So it's an asset. We've got a new business, which is called Richard Roberts, which is a land promotion business. And we started trialing this business in about 2020. And effectively what land promotion is, is it is a gambling business. So what you do is you partner with a landowner, you say, I will fund your planning consent. And if the outcome is positive, so we win, then we will uh, take a charge on the land, but we take a charge on land uh, earlier, but we will sell that land and we will take a very large percentage and we'll get our costs back. And if we lose, we lose our money. So effectively we bet on the outcome of planning consents. Now that business now is already bigger than lettings was. So since summer of last year with the money that we've invested it, it's probably got a profit level, which is 10 X and it's got now a turnover, which is greater than lettings was within. But, but you needed that lump. Totally. So, so to put it in context, each deal is probably requires about 30 to 40,000 pounds worth of funding. And at the moment we've got, you know, thick end of 40 to 50 deals, which are currently in the process, you know, which we sort of sign terms on. And so it's just, it is a massive cash hoover. Now, if it does what I believe it will do, and if these bets pay off, it will be a fantastic 10x business. In other words, if it's making two, three million pounds a year, it will be worth 25, 30 million pounds as a business to sell in the future. And the question is, if I've got a business which let's say is worth, I don't know, anywhere between one and two million, so the lettings business, it's worth one to two million quid now. If I keep growing that at 10% per year, organic growth, what might I make that worth? I might make it worth 2.5, 3, 3.5. I can make a small margin on it whilst I'm doing that, which is great. It provides stability. It helps justify things like premises. So it's got lots of value, but it's never going to be worth 30 million or 50 million or 100 million. So for example, the biggest land promoter in the UK was recently sold to Barrett's and it was sold for 250 million pounds. So, and here's the other beauty of the business. If you imagine what we're doing is we're creating a pipeline of land which is having planning permission secured on it. So we now have a town planning business and an architecture practice, which provide professional services for that land promotion business. We have a land and new homes business, which then gets given land to sell to developers. And guess who they use to sell that? Preston Baker. And, and who do they use to finance it? Feel Good Financial, our mortgage business. So we're actually creating this top of the funnel business, which is now feeding the rest of the business going forward, but it takes a two to three year gestation period. Now we've been backed by the Northern Powerhouse. So the Northern Powerhouse has invested half a million pounds in uh, Richard Roberts. And we've had lots of other funding secured for it, but it's just a cash over. So that's the bet, that's the play. And is it foolish? Is it a stroke of genius? Um, well, only time will tell. Only time will tell. So it could, yeah, it could genuinely be the biggest act of self-harm in my sort of professional career, or alternatively, it'll be the thing which spurs us onto that next level. And we'll just have to wait and see. How do other agents do this land promotion? Mm. They don't. No, but how would they? If oh, so how would they? Okay, fine. So 
we started on a really small scale. Um, and effectively, if you've ever, most land agents will have come across options. In fact, land agents will have come across promotions as well. But effectively, it is a route to you taking a joint venture with a landowner where you think it's got planning permission. Uh, but you have to do the work. You do the work and you fund it. Hence, you need the lump from the 600 selling the... That's right. So, so effectively, that's it. That's the gamble. Where did the idea come from? So it was brought to me by um, uh, Hugh, um, Hugh, who's our land director. Um, and he said, I've seen other people doing this. I'd like to have a go. And he brought it to me and James. And we said, OK, sure. There's a cheque for 80 grand. Proved to us that it works. So we did three deals. And, this, and he came to me in like March 2020. So it was like COVID time. Yeah. So we had plenty of time on our hands, you know, to sort of think through strategy. And we thought, oh my God, if we can get this to work, I, I ran the numbers on it. And I said, once we'd sort of started the first few deals, I sort of then presented back to James and Hugh and I said, I've run the numbers on this. And I believe that we could make a business which could generate a 50% net profit margin. But you need you need to put the you need to put the bets on the table. You have to put the bets on the table. So you've got to make sure you're making great bets. You've got to have great people around you to make those bets. You've got to have lots of money, and you've got to make sure that you're prepared to wait. So time is one of the key things. What patience? Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. So so we're kind of two to three years into it, and so far, so so one of the key metrics is how many of the sites do you win. So the thing which influences profitability more than anything else is how what proportion of the bets that you make come off. We think that you need to win about 50-50. And our target is to win two out of three. If an agent watching this thought to himself, that sounds my cup of tea, could they contact you for advice? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'd be, yeah, if, if people want to reach out, we had an idea that we might franchise it. So we might actually do all the work for the agent. They might go out and meet them. To be honest with you, we just wanted to focus on... Well, can it make sure the model works Totally, nailing nail it ourselves. Um, but yeah, like uh, I've had a conversation with a couple of other agents in the property academy groups that I'm a member of who've expressed interest when I've talked about what we're doing. But yeah, it's, it's something where you've got to have patience, you've got to have money and you've got to have the right people. Is this, is this the thing that's going to keep you going for the next totally. five, 10 years? Oh my God, yeah. It's, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the estate agency and that's still where I spend the most time is um, developing the partnerships with our new self-employed agents and that has been phenomenal. I've loved it. Um, but yeah, in terms of like, you know, if I wanted to retire and buy a yacht, that's the business. Well, let's get you back in five or 10 years time and see if it's <laughs> successful. That's it. Thank you for your time today. Pleasure.